0: of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh,
1: Zach here, as always, along with Matt. How you doing, man? Shh, broken toe, brother. I mean, come on. Feeling the pain yeah. and getting ready to record. Mm-hmm. Matt, Matt thought it'd be a good idea to drop a 2x4 on his foot right
0: before we recorded today. So, And I asked him about ibuprofen. He's like, hey, did you take ibuprofen? He's like, no, I have bourbon. I was like, okay. That's the better way to medicate, I guess. <laughs> so, Anywho... Um, Tonight we have Kevin Sheehan with Offspring Reptiles We're going to be talking all things Texas rat snakes, So we're looking forward to jumping into that here in a minute Uh, But before we do that, um, we're going to do our little updates like we always do It's been a little while uh, since Jen Archer's episode dropped Um, Are we back on our two-week or or are we on our three-week rotation now, Matt? I I can't remember I think we're
1: on a two-week right now but that's all
0: subject yeah, to change. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Immortal change, because we're really busy guys. <laughs> um, so I guess, uh, keeping with the theme of us being busy, we can kind of give our, our quick updates. And I have a fairly significant update, actually. It doesn't have anything to do about breeding snakes or snakes hatching, though. I had some of that go down. But um, I looked at my calendar, and I'm about to start kind of what you've been going through the past month. I'm about to hit starting week after basically starting with tinley um which is i think there's like an eight week stretch where i am home three weekends so i was thinking about the book when i saw that a couple weeks ago and i basically was like hey russ we got to get this thing done and um i have been working non-stop on the final edits uh, one thing I can say, no one tells you when you write a book how many times you've got to read said book before you can actually be done with the book. I think we're on like round 20, 25 of just hunting down commas, periods, semicolons, uh, just this kind of ad nauseum tedium that comes when you're wrapping something up. But the product, the final product, uh, I'm pretty proud of. Um, this thing's going to be, I think we're going to just. I think we're going to literally make it to page 300 and be done so uh, we have pictures so many pictures I cannot tell you how many pictures and I only took about 20 of them we haven't counted them so I don't want to give a number I can definitely say there's more than 150 pictures Uh, that I know for a fact and every one of those pictures needs a photographer credit and all of those pictures need a caption Um, and uh, when we were done with that yeah, you know, that added literally tons of pages to the book. Um, the husbandry piece is done. I added an appendix in the eleventh hour because I thought it'd be pretty cool to have twenty different locations around South America, and and kind of got some inspiration from a Mastic's book I bought my son actually. Um, and then I was talking with Scott Iper, who just published this tome is the better way to say it on a lapids. And uh, they put in a bunch of climactic information. So I thought, what the hell, I can do that too. So added a 30 page, or sorry, 20 page appendix in in like the 11th hour of all these different locales where all the snakes live to kind of give the keepers an idea of what the annual rainfall is, high temperature, low temperature, mean temperature. Um, But yeah, no, this thing should, knock on wood, be heading to the publisher I'm going to say I think I don't think I'm being cautiously optimistic. I think I'm being optimistic that we're going to be sending it away by the end of next month. So um, the last email I sent to Russ was finalish revision. So not final revision. It's final ish. But those of you who have been kind of giving me motivation and props for the book, I thank you highly. And we are nearing the end of this process and hopefully either around Christmas time or the new year um, a book on xenodontid snake husbandry and natural history will be landing for all of us to enjoy. So that's my big announcement. Other things, final false water Cobra hatched as in a single baby. Um, I had a clutch that, uh, we threw it in the incubator and weren't paying as close attention as we should have. And it got a little bit too wet. So that was, a stupid for lack of a better word so we have one baby out of there but I'm down to about I don't know I think I have seven left so anybody that's interested in a falsie, um, shoot or hit me up on Facebook or in Instagram because I want to move these guys as soon as possible they're high yellow or hypos I prefer high yellow and I think I'm down to one or two high black animals I uh, had a clutch of thorn scrub Rat snakes hatch. Um, those are big babies. Wasn't prepared for that. Uh, going eye clutch hatch. And the final eggs in the incubator, I have a clutch of lavender um, Florida kings. I, if you listened to the last episode, I inherited all of Jen Archer's animals. Some of those have double clutched, and those are from Jen. But it's kind of weird because we're, like, getting ready to wrap up hatching and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, get a break, and now it's, like, cold here. So I'm like, ah, oh, son of a bee. Like, we're going to be going into brumation soon and starting this whole thing again in a couple months. So, uh, but no, keeps it fun.
1: So that's my announcement. Uh, what do you have going on, Matthew? Well, I'm still waiting on Vietnamese mandarins to finish hatching. Um, I think there's 10 more clutches left to hatch for the month of October. And... I have six clutches of tricolor eggs in the incubator that are still waiting to hatch. Damn. So I think there's another 60 tricolors <laughs> to hatch for this season. And the greatest part about them is they all eat out of the egg. Um, so I just... I'm so happy for you. I know. And I just <laughs> continue to piss Zach off every episode. <laughs> um, so... Um, <sighs> But that being said, you know, anyone interested in tricolors, obviously let me know, because as Zach had even mentioned, and I think might even be mentioned in the book is just there are certain there lines, lines of tricolors that do better in captivity than others. Um, and mm-hmm. and really, that's kind of the lineage of animals you would want to have in captivity to create a stronger line of animals for the future. Um, Zach? Yeah, I'll give you
0: a little plug on that, um, because Matt has posted several times, deli cup after deli cup after deli cup of tricolor, just pounding a pinky, Uh, that, if you want tricolors, you want that, I don't really care what they look like, yeah, pretty's cool, but if they're going to eat as babies, they're going to eat as adults, and it's not really hard to get a tricolor hog no steak to eat as an adult, it can be a little bit of a pain in the ass to get the babies to go, so,
1: I congratulate you on your line, sir. Well, (laughs) Long time coming, I guess, right? <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, other than that, uh, some CAPE files recently hatched, So I'm always excited when those things pop out. Um, other than that, honestly, I'm starting to turn off heat on a number of racks right now, just trying to cycle animals down for the winter. Um, and off of that, I mean, really, it's just a matter of just kind of cycling things for 2023 right now in terms of getting, you know, enough Fat on the body of the females, yep. um, monitoring, looking at things of what I'm looking for, selectively breeding for next year. Um, also, looking at projects and seeing like where do things line up for the coming years to see maybe if certain things should move out um, and and hold back of animals too as well. But other than that, that's been about it. Um, this starts to become a a little bit more, I don't know, reasonable time of the year versus sanity. <laughs> Um, yeah, but you know, off of that though, I mean, one of the things we really want to touch base on is any questions that really kind of popped up from gem Jen's episode. Um, because obviously we had a lot of questions that popped up related to crypto and diagnosing crypto, seeing crypto, how do you treat animals, stuff like that. And I think one of the biggest things from Zach and I's conversation too, as well is we're not veterinarians, right? Um, no, we are not. And really, when you start to see symptoms or anything of that matter, you really want to get a veterinarian involved to actually do any sort of diagnostic testing of that nature. Um, And you don't want to, you know, jump the gun and start treating animals in a means because you'll end up succumbing to their actual immune system and actually weakening it. And in that process, you know, you could weaken your entire community of animals, too, as well.
0: Yeah, we we, not that kind of doctor. Uh, <laughs> definitely don't want people thinking that we're we're promoting self-diagnosis. You know, the the point of the episode was absolutely to get information out there um, to kind of talk a little bit about the biology, a little bit about the pathology. But if I don't know how many times in that episode we said, "Get a vet, get a vet, get a vet," and um, those of you who might be thinking. How do I get a a vet? Um, There's the, I think it's ARAV, the Association of Reptile and Amphibian (laughs) Veterinarians, which is on, they have a wonderful website, they actually have a journal, Uh, and there's a couple crypto articles in that journal, by the way. Um, But on that website, they have a directory for reptile veterinarians, so if you're trying to figure out, like, who can I take my vet, or sorry, who can I take my snake to that may or may not have crypto... Um, get on there and look at that directory and find one that is close to you. Uh, there are a handful of veterinarians I know of that will do consults via Zoom where you can send in samples through the mail. Uh, and if these thing, if these guys or gals are within a couple-hour driving distance, it's worth the drive because you want to get your animal checked out by somebody who knows what's, what's going down. So... Um, one of the the questions I know that came up that we can kind of hit on right now is once you identify that you have crypto in a snake, like, what do you do with it? Somebody asked that. I'm not. I don't remember exactly who asked that question, but I remember there was something of that nature in the chat. Uh, and to be honest with you, that really depends on your that, that that almost is like a philosophical question beyond just a pragmatic question. In, in one regard, you. you you should almost certainly isolate. Um, And when I was dealing with crypto initially and talking with veterinarians, I can't tell you how many of them said that one of the best things you can do is simply get doors and floors between your animals, because that's a good way to stop the vectors that cause the spread. Uh, So it might be worth it to have uh, a crypto room or a, a part of your house or facility or whatever where you can move the animals that have crypto. I know at West Liberty, we certainly have uh, one of the researchers' labs. He's a stream ecologist. And in his lab, we have the snakes that at one time were confirmed to have crypto, but are, uh, for all intents and purposes, right now look to be very healthy. So our approach is that uh, we have a crypt, we refer to it as a crypto ward. Um, and then obviously, those animals get treated either by themselves on a given day or they're the last animals treated at the end of the day. Uh, and, and we have bred those animals. We've gotten eggs from those animals. The, the progeny we've tested for crypto. We actually used them in an experiment to see, is crypto going to be passed from mom to kid via the egg? And we don't seem to have any evidence of that happening. I'm not I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I'm just simply saying, based off our, our limited if experience, we haven't picked up any crypto that way. Um, but another way to view it is, and 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 here again, it's the philo- philosophical question: uh, Do you want to have animals that have crypto in your collection? Um, and if that's the case, you can either a find somebody who's willing to take crypto animals. For the record, I am not saying West Liberty wants to take your crypto animals. Uh, I've had more than a handful of people reach out to me and hear me on other podcasts where we talk about crypto and say, Hey, I've got crypto. Do you want to take my corn snake, hognose snake? Um, the answer is no. Uh, but there may be somebody who has that situation, uh, or you could move them on. A couple of our animals, we have moved on with people. They didn't show any sign of um, regurgitation or body swell. And we had a couple students who basically said, I'm going to have one pet snake um, and we inform them like, well, we have this corn snake that doesn't show any outward signs of crypto, but a pop positive one time. So in that situation, you know, we've moved them on that way. But it's really kind of up to you what you ultimately will will do. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Matt?
1: No, I think, you know, right now especially becomes the time for the biggest shows around the country to as well. And I think mm-hmm. one of the biggest things that anyone listening to this episode or, you know, any episodes in the future really needs to take to, into consideration is quarantining animals appropriately, you know, because you, mm-hmm. you you really just don't know what an animal might have until you actually have it in your collection. And I think it's just one of those preventative measures of which, you know, and it, it's a due diligence, right? It's the responsibility of totally. any keeper, keeping animals. Um, and it's also really the responsibility of anyone, uh, vending at a show, you know, you want to make sure that you kind of go over these kind of profiles of quarantining. Um, especially when someone's walking through a show, you know, with animals in their hand and walking through a whole exhibit, you never know what can happen. Um, it's very easy. It's just like people picking up the common cold, right. Walking through, I mean, you just want to make sure you're taking preventative measures. Um, You know, obviously included off of that is just quarantining animals. It's very easy to do and it should be a part of the daily process, especially when you're, um, you know, buying animals that may be substantially expensive too. So
0: yeah. Hell yeah. Nope. Here at the house, my quarantine is my son's former toy room. It has two racks in it and a bunch of Rubbermaid tubs. Drives my wife crazy. It's on the third floor behind one set of doors. And then where I'm sitting right now in my office, it's in the basement. So you got to go down multiple floors. It's got a door. And then the other collection, I have two collections here at the house. Um, The other, the big snakes are in the garage, which is behind another set of doors. So I really took that floors and doors idea to heart when uh, setting it up. But there's not a single animal that goes into these the tubs and the racks that I'm in or the PVC enclosures until it's been in that room upstairs for at least 60 days and to be honest with you I go 90 uh only because once you've had to deal with a crypto outbreak one time uh you will never not if it uh, unless it doesn't scar you and I don't know how the hell it doesn't scar you you will not you will not not quarantine after that that's that's pretty much all there is I have to say about that so
1: well, yeah. off of that, I mean, why don't we move into a more positive nature? And uh, Zach, do yes. <laughs> you want to introduce our <laughs> guest for the night?
0: Yeah, it's been very gloom and doomy around here with <laughs> the crypto episode. And now we're doing a follow-up for the crypto episode. So on to better and more fun topics. Not better topics, but more, much more fun. How about that? So like we said before, we have Kevin Shia uh, from Offspring Reptiles. Um, Kevin has been keeping reptiles pretty much forever. It sounds like from the the little bit of time I got to know Kevin that this is a family affair and that, you know, dad and and other family members are into this as well, which is pretty cool. Uh, And we're going to be talking tonight about Texas rat snakes. We're going to be talking about um, kind of why we do this uh, the passion part of the hobby. And yeah, so without further ado, Kevin, welcome to Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. Um, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks, guys, for having me. Yeah, love to have you. So why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about yourself, your background, how long you've been doing this, and, and where
2: Offspring Reptiles came from. Oh, man. Uh, it started in about 1999, and I was uh, three years old. I got my first <laughs> corn snake. Uh, I don't know if you've... I'm sure Matt's been there, Lee Watson's swap meet in uh, Streamwood, Illinois. No, haven't uh, not been there yet. <laughs> no, it's no no longer. Oh, uh, no longer. I yeah. guess I'm never going. Yeah. No
1: Lee <laughs> Lee Lee Watson is dead, but that was quite the interesting aspect of um shows that were initially starting throughout the Midwest. And we I can tell a little bit of history about that afterwards. We we start this one. <laughs> so Okay, cool. Yes.
2: So that was uh that was my first snake. I'm the youngest of three. I got two older brothers. Uh they actually raced tor- uh, box turtles before I was even born and everything. So was basically <laughs> born into it. My dad was breeding rat snakes and everything before they were even born in the, in the early 80s. And uh, never really, he just sold them to local pet shops and everything, didn't invent any shows or anything. And then, uh, you know, I just grew up around them. My, uh, my oldest brother went to a, a college for biology degree to be a teacher. And that's where uh, he got into the retics and everything. And we started vending Tinley after we got a couple of clutches of those. And I uh, actually found my first set of Texas rat snakes on one of the Tinley pages. And that's my dad was going to buy them. And I said, No, I, I want these. Like, what are you going to do with these? I'm, like, ah, I'm going to breed them. So they were they were babies at the time. And it's like, There's no way you're going to breed those. So I think I was 16 at the time when, when that first happened. And uh, ever since then, I mean, the Texas rat snakes, man, that's just. Then, then my love. That's cool.
1: Yeah. So cool, cool, cool. that's like one of the cooler parts I think in this episode too is kind of talking about, you know, how you actually get into a certain species and really grow off of that species in advance. Cause, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. one of those things, Kevin, and you and I have talked about this over the years too, is you know, focusing on one specific um demographic, you know, and kind of expanding off of it, selectively breeding. Um, you know, breeding for different traits, breeding for different morphs, you know, at this point in time, I mean, you pretty much have all the morphs of Texas rats in your collection.
2: I, I mean, yeah, I would, I would say so. <laughs> uh, you and, you and I met have talked. There's has uh, been talk. I don't, it's kind of a touchy subject, but, uh, the, the pie Texas rat snake, that's, that I sent you back and forth before. And <laughs> it's, well, we'll see what happens with that. I'm not sure who owns it now, but, uh, if that's an actual recessive trait, I mean, I'd love to get that in, into my project and everything, but I've got aneries, leucistics, uh, albinos, lab albinos, snow. I mean, just, just about everything. Scaleless in there, in the mix. Uh, Matt, Matt and I have been, been working on quad hats and triple hats, just trying to, trying to make, trying to see what we can make and, and visually what, what differences. And I mean, if, it's just this—the passion, and I mean, I just love, love inter- interacting with with them. And it's, I mean, you can have two snakes who are twins in the egg, and they just have two different dispositions. I mean, it's just just crazy with with what you can get from them. With just just one species, you know, with with yeah. all the variation, and it's not a ball python.
0: It's not a ball python. That's true. <laughs> so, so with um with the Texas rats, let's get one thing out of the way real quick. Cause they, within the North American rat snake complex, uh, you have like, whether you go burr brink and do three species or you go the old school way with all the different subspecies. Um, so we'll go the old school way. Cause I think it's Lindheimer. is that correct? Yes. sir. For the subspecies for Texas. Yeah. And I remember back when I was in college, I used to go to the all Ohio reptile show. I actually still go to that one. Um, This was in the 97, 98. And it was the end of the day, and uh, I was walking out of of the show, and this guy just stopped me randomly, and he goes, you want this? And I was like, what the hell? Like, you're just going to give me a snake? And I said, what is it? And he goes, it's Texas rat snake. It's bit six people today. I was like, okay, I'll take it. And I took it home, and I didn't know anything about their so-called reputation. I absolutely love that thing. It had high pattern. It was, like, orange and yellow, um, that kind of... Here in the East Coast, our black rats have this, like, interstitial scale thing going on, but this wasn't that. It it was up on the, like, dorsum of the animal, Um, and it had a pretty nasty disposition, and I just held it, like, two or three times a week, and then within... I think it was like a month and a half. It lost that disposition, and then that became one of like my standard snakes when I would go to schools and do snake shows. And I've told people that I would use a Texas rat in a snake show, and they look at me like I'm high. But uh, what, what's been your experience with their disposition? Is, is there truth to this reputation? My, my sample size is one. <laughs> I had one Texas
2: rat. But, um, you know, what,
0: what just talk a little bit about that.
2: So uh match actually I got some match snakes that were either F one or Wild Caught. And even those, I mean, when I first got them, I'm sure that they were still real stressed out and whatnot just from shipping and, and whatnot. But after a week or two, I mean they really calmed down. Everyone oh it's Texas Rat Snake, Texas Rat Snake. I mean, I'm a mechanic and my, my hands are clean. <laughs> and, and I the the retakes, if you ask me, those those are more cage aggressive than than the Texas Rat Snakes. So I've got, I want to say, thirty-five adults and maybe one or two. I I uh, don't really trust that much, but I mean, once they're out, they're fine. And then babies, babies. Maybe when I go to feed them, yeah. they're they're real crazy. But other than that, the babies are actually kind of relaxed.
1: Yeah.
0: Matt, you want to speak to that at all?
1: No, I mean, you know, it's it's really the truth. I I think in all honesty, Texas rats get a bad name in this hobby. And I think a lot of it has to do Mm -hmm, with the fact that, you know. What we see it posted, right? I mean, social media is a very challenging aspect within this whole industry. Oh Yes. And (laughs) what everyone wants to see is a snake coiled up, ready to strike. Right. So that's usually what you see. Um, And even off of that, if you really go back into the historical images of leucistic Texas rats, right? Um, Roden Pro at one point had a leucistic Texas rat coiled up with its mouth open in one of their advertisements in Reptile magazine. So, you know, you get that persona. It's like the same persona when people talk about snakes and why they're afraid of snakes. It's just, you know the representation of an animal versus, you know, holding an animal, um, working with an animal, you know, like Kevin mentioned, I mean, working with an animal brings out a lot of information of that animal and that connection. And I think that's, that's great. You know, Kevin, that you're actually doing that with that, because like Zach said, I mean, you could have a Texas rat that becomes probably one of the best animals to have on display for a conversation. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: I wanted to give him props right off the bat and just kind of nip that in the ass. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. So um, yeah. Uh, what? So w- how do you set yours up? What's your care schedule? Um, or you know, let, let's 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 go with the con- with um housing. What do you keep your juvies in? Your hatchlings in? Your adults in?
2: So that's that's go kind of it. a tough one. So I actually do everything. <laughs> I still live with my parents. I do everything out of my bedroom. Well, there you go. I got over 100 Texas Rat snakes in my bedroom. I got a 7030 rack for the adults. And that's just got uh, it's either got aspen or if I'm not cooling some adults for the winter since I'm in in Chicago it gets kind of dry with the heat with the furnace running all winter. So I'll do uh chip in the in the winter with them just to give them a little bump in humidity. Um Juveniles, I'll go 15 to 20-quart uh, tubs, basically the same setup, uh, bowl of water. And I don't I don't heat any of my racks, believe it or not. I do not heat anything. Room temperature, oh, really? that's why I love them. And I, I don't even think I've told Matt that before, and him and I have talked about these for years. And uh, so, like I said, everything's out of my bedroom. And then babies, I'll do either V-18s or uh, what is the new Freedom Breeder one, the, the skinnier one that's the same size, the— Freedom Beater 15, is it? I want to say one, sure. one of those tubs. <laughs> but like I said, I, I do everything on my bedroom, so space is tight. I've got um, 10-gallon tanks that are flipped on their side with a drop-down door. For I actually have one, Scaleless Leucistic, and she's like my prized possession. That's the first Scaleless Leucistic that I produced. She's in that. She's like in a showcase cage in my room. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just trying and, try and keep it basic, basic with these guys. I mean, why... Why go, go – I mean, I have uh, cork bark in there and everything, but I'm not not trying to make it a stressed-out environment when I go to clean it and change everything up. Go to put it back in there, and they get stressed out, and they possibly may not eat, may not breed that year or something like that going along those lines.
1: So, Kevin, real quick, going off of that comment. At one point in time, I posted an image of a Texas rat in a wreck, and the guy said, that's the most deplorable <laughs> – husbandry I've ever seen. And what's amazing to me is people have no idea where these animals are found. Um they would not realize the deplorable conditions of where these animals are actually <laughs> situated because these animals are a hundred percent scavengers. Um you know that being said, you know, Stan Grombeck, who I was just going to bring that up
2: the one that
1: that you sent me that was in the chicken coop getting pooped on. I'm sure eating
2: the eggs and everything. So, I mean, what, I mean, what is that snake used to living in?
1: Right. It's
2: it's trying to stay hidden and scavenger scavenging for the, for the eggs.
1: Why does Stan send that to send that to you? And then you sent it to me because it was stealing his chicken eggs. Right. (laughs) And, and I mean, that's really kind of the truth. I mean, I think, you know, as field biologists too, as well, I mean, one of the best ways to find snakes is by laying down boards, searching through rubbish, trash, anything like that, because that's where those animals are going to be fine, because that's their security level of it. Um, So, you know, I mean, talking about keeping it simple doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad because you're keeping it more as a sanitary condition, easy to disinfect, clean, everything like that.
0: Well,
2: exactly. Yeah.
0: But by providing them the bedding too, you're, it's funny that we're talking about this right now because I teach at West Liberty the herpetoculture, herpetology and herpetoculture. The lecture is herpetology. The lab is herpetoculture. It's probably the, my favorite class I've ever taught. And we are just – we've been doing week after week after week in lab of like – we do a week on lighting. And then we do a week on caging. Then we do a week on plants. And then we do you know all this kind of stuff. And this is for people that want to work in zoos. So we're talking about building like crocodile enclosures at Brookfield Zoo as well as keeping stuff in your, your house. And one of the things we talk about is like there's lots of ways to add complexity to a small enclosure. And one of the – you're doing it. And one of the ways – best ways to do that for snakes is to just add an inch or two of um, some kind of substrate that they can either sit on top of, go down in the middle of, or dig down into and so that's – yeah. I don't think people really think about that when it comes to rat keeping, when, when people start pointing the finger. Like if you were keeping them on newspaper and they don't have any substrate or anything, eh, okay, that may not be the best. But,
2: you know. I don't think they'd, they'd eat if, if they didn't have that bedding or anything to hide them, yeah. to be honest. Yep. Yeah.
0: Ever, ever since we had John Lasseter on, like I think that was the second or third episode – and he was talking about how he keeps his alterna and, and his um, they or I and I don't know Le- Leonis I think is what they're Leonis, called kings and, Outings, yeah, yeah. and yep. yeah and he talked about how he had a rack tub and he gave it two inches of aspen bedding and you know where are these snakes live in they're living in rock crevices and you know it's really kind of made me rethink the way we we view a rack um, a rack tub so not necessarily I don't want one set of herpetoculturalists to be like oh my god he's pro rack i'm not saying that per se i'm i'm but i am pro if you like are giving them what they need in the rack i don't understand what's 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 horrible about that so exactly anyway. and that's yeah. that's
2: like my whole thing is so the i make 10 gallon conversion kits i also breed gargoyle geckos so i'll take those with the drop down door yeah and and, and i'll use that and I can stack them up like a rack in the same – basically almost the same amount of footprint as a uh, a 28-quart tub, but it's got more height to it, so I can put tree branches in there and, and whatnot for, yeah, to get it something to climb on.
0: After the show, we're going to talk about those conversion kits, by the way. <laughs> That's, at, it's been been a few years since I made them, but I can I, I, was, I was at the um, Pittsburgh Super Show, whatever the hell, today, and uh, I've seen a couple of those. I've never seen as many of those as I saw today, and I thought, good God, I've got 20 10-gallon aquariums in my garage right now. It's like,
2: "That's i got to learn how to do this. It's perfect for the (laughs) juveniles. It's got the perfect mm -hmm. footprint. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about this we're not heating them thing. So do you not heat in the wintertime and the, the, the summertime, and you think that's like what's responsible for the trigger
2: for breeding or, or so no, I've actually, yes? I've actually done it a couple ways. Okay. So my first year I did it, it I, like I said, I've never ran heat on any of my racks or any of my cages. So the first year I did it, I cooled everything. Cooled everything, everything bred. Second year I, I when I was breeding, same thing, no heat in the summer, spring, any of that. In the winter I cooled half of them and half of them I didn't. Half half the females are cooled, half the males are cooled, and then the same vice versa that weren't cooled. Yeah. And uh, no problem breeding. Like I have a feeling, uh, I'm sure you guys will know more about it with the biology background and everything. With with the pressure changes in in Chicago and mm-hmm. everything, most likely triggering it. Um, this year with all the all the genetic traits and everything, I'm most likely going to cool everything just to <laughs> to give it that extra push so everything goes next mm-hmm. year. So. But the the cooling, uh, my dad's been a mechanic his whole life, so he doesn't like like the cold or the heat. <laughs> so our house stays right around seventy eight degrees year round, and that's in my bedroom mm-hmm. and everything. And I've just found that, that that to be the optimum temperature. And Matt and I were talking talking about this before we even started about about feeding them. I feed them chicks, I feed them chicken mm-hmm. chicks, pheasant chicks, and everything, and they'll they'll eat one day, and three days later they're pooping out that meal. With, yeah. with no heat. So, I mean, would I, could you benefit from that? I'm not 100% sure, but I don't see a reason to with with the success that I've had.
1: Yeah. Oh, no. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, man. Bingo. That's, <laughs> that's the way I feel. Well, and, and, and Kevin, you know, this is something um, Clint, Bartley, and I, we've been playing around with a little bit, too, is I really do think we overfeed animals in captivity and in in, in terms Absolutely. of that conversation, you know feeding a heavy rodent diet versus a poultry diet for a number of different North American species, those animals will typically have um, lower fecundity or and the males especially will have limited success in terms of their breeding behavior. And by feeding chicks, what I have noticed with black rats and Texas rats is that the males especially have a higher attraction towards females because they're not having any sort of um, heavy weight or fat. And I think it really does play a role when you start to really think about, you know, diet, what we're actually doing, heating, heating, especially of the animals. I mean, all this stuff plays, you know, that giant experiment, you know, in our collections and by heating animals too warm, we can obviously reduce the sperm count of males. Right. I mean, it's just like, oh, uh, I'm
2: experiencing that with my blood pythons.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I you know, i for four years and I haven't got a,
2: got a good fertile clutch. Yeah. And so, I think it's, it's too
1: hot. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, you know, you obviously keeping temperatures lower. You're also feeding a prey item that um, digests a little bit easier. It's a little bit leaner. I think that all plays an active role here in your keeping cycle. And and Zach, I mean, you you would have information off of that too. Yeah, no,
0: I, I agree. I, I think um, uh, we're actually I I'm I, I've got to kind of think about what I want to do with the students here. Um. Because we've kind of we've we've made a lot of baby colubrids in the past couple of years for theses, and that's all well and good, but when you end up with two hundred fifty three hundred babies, and I know Matt's like, "Ph, three hundred babies, what's that <laughs> but um for us normal people uh, that's uh you know that's a little daunting, but we're we're now looking at I want to do some stuff looking at growing. Calubrids, in particular um, with a avian diet versus a rodent diet. And, and I do think there's a lot of truth to that. With pantherophis, it makes so much sense to have a heavy chick bird diet because in the wild, and these guys are well-known nest robbers. Um, whenever they occur sympatrically with lampropeltis uh, and pitchophis to that degree, there's there's niche partitioning. I'm certainly not saying that they're not underneath a piece of tin eating a meadow vole if the opportunity arises. But uh, king snakes don't normally go up. Gophers will go up, but they don't go up as often as the Pantherophis do. These these snakes, a large percentage of their diet is birds. And there's a biologist that all colubrid uh, keepers, especially if you keep North American stuff, Y'all need to nerd out with one of my absolute heroes on planet Earth. His name's um, Dr. Henry Fitch, or Dr. Fitch. He was at the University of Kansas uh, forever. He was at a field station. He moved in there with his family uh, when he first got the gig in Kansas, and then he lived there for, like, more than 40 years, and he just literally caught snakes the entire time he was there. He had his kids catching snakes. He had wives catching snakes, bringing snakes into his kitchen, Um And he would take the same data on all these different species. He would make them regurgitate, see what they were eating. And then he did this for 40 consecutive years. And he's written a bunch of books uh, or monographs. He had PhD students doing this. And he wrote a book called A Kansas Snake Community, which is just fantastic, nerdy, natural history book. And in there is a rat snake. And when you look at the diet, it shows that birds were an extremely important part of that particular snake's diet. Whereas some of the other species that we commonly keep, like bull snakes and, and you know the latter, they, they were feeding primarily on rodents. So I see absolutely nothing wrong with chicks. And another thing about chicks is if you can find the right supplier, chicks are freaking cheap. Um, they are nowhere near as expensive as these damn rodents, which used to be 50, 75 cents a pop. Now they're more than a dollar a piece. Uh so there's another benefit that's probably going to be pushing more people to chicks maybe than biology um trying not to go broke with your snakes um so yeah no by all means i think it's i think it's a well, uh, worthy endeavor to to feed feed that way and not feed them as
2: often as we are and when when uh when Matt sent me that snake from from Stan that was stealing the chicken eggs that's basically what kind of got me started on hey, you know what maybe i should switch some diets up around here and you know, I've had great success with that, and whether it be chicken chicks, pheasant chicks, quail chicks, mm-hmm.
1: and any chick, really. Well, and it's funny, too, because, like, some of the Texas I have here, I'll actually put chicken eggs inside of their cage. And they'll actually <laughs> yep. eat chicken, whole chicken eggs. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's one of, like, the cool parts when you really start to elaborate in terms of natural biology, thinking about where animals are found, thinking about diet. You know, and, and Kevin, I mean, you know, thinking about temperature ranges too, as well, when you start to really look at that, I mean, most of these animals, I mean, you're not going to go on a hundred degree day and find Texas rat snakes outside. No. I mean, so when you start to really think about like temperature requirements, what animals are actually basking at, what they're actually utilizing. I mean, that 70 to 80 degree is really kind of the optimal temperature. Because above that, I mean, you're not going to find me outside herping. I can guarantee that one. I mean, you might find Zach out there in a river looking for crayfish.
0: Eh.
2: (laughs) Actually, it's funny you say
0: that. When it gets above 80, that's when we're definitely going to be crawdad hunting because we're in the river. So, yeah, 100%. Then at nighttime, we're herping because it's not freaking above 85 degrees anymore. Uh,
1: So, anywho. Okay. All uh, right. But Kevin, well, no, that was a fun discussion. Yeah. But Kevin, you know, talking about cooling animals, because um, you've sent me pictures before, what do you typically try to achieve in terms of cooling your adult animals before breeding? So, you mean like temperature wise or? Temperature, uh-huh. um, cycling, light cycle, um, time, like how long you keep them in, bromation, anything like that. So what I do is I, my adults, I
2: feed every week a chick, a chicken chick. It's the perfect size, probably for three months straight, going into the first two weeks of November. Uh, November 1st is when I, I stop feeding. Then everybody says, oh, bring them down gradually to temperature. Uh, I don't have, don't have anywhere to, to really cool them other than a crawl space, the entrance to my crawl space. So they go from... 78 degrees to whatever the entrance to the crawl space is in Chicago, in our house in Chicago. So, past couple of years, it's maybe gotten down to 62, 63. So there's not that much of a temperature difference. But the I think the light cycle because it's lights out, lights out from uh, Thanksgiving is when I put them in there, and then I take them out. Uh, Valentine's Day is when I take them out. I do holiday to holiday. I got a lot going on in my life. It's just easier to oh, it's a holiday. Okay, I got to take these out, you know. So, well, I just just find it that, that that's the easiest way to do it for myself, at least. There's a million ways to do it, and not not every way is going to work for everyone.
1: Well, and your girlfriend would be very upset if you didn't take her out to dinner on Valentine's Day. So now you got your snake cue <laughs> with pulling out your animals. Yeah.
2: So that's that's like
0: a date, isn't it? You know. <laughs> yeah. There you go. You can have the food, honey, once we
2: get these snakes out. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I'm I'm not like Matt where I'm pulling thousands out, you know?
1: Yeah. uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. Oh, man. No, but I I think that's even a cooler thing because, like, we we continue to ask people about that, right? I mean, like, because we did that brumation episode in terms of cooling, cycling animals, and people are looking for this drastic, like, 50 degrees, and then you have people like Chad that go, no, I don't even do this anymore. I just put them together.
2: I'm, I'm sure it all changes generations into captivity. Just like, yeah. I mean, humans, stuff changes. I mean, you could have people. Think about, um, like, people in the 60s and 70s. I mean, go out on a 100-degree day in, in wool clothes, and they're fine. I mean, people my age, 26 years old now, they go out 100 degrees. I work with a couple of firefighters. I'm a mechanic, too, and we'll be out in our in our firefighter gear, and they're like, you're not complaining about the heat. I was like, I'm gonna shop in the summer, dude. It's 100 degrees in there, 110, and I'm underneath a hot bus. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's all generation dependent and, and how you're brought up and all that, and what yep. what works. And I also think that there's uh,
0: there's more than one trigger uh, that's that's kind of getting them ready for this. Uh, I was just listening to um, Marillia Python Radio today. Uh, the Ari Flagel Keith McPeak episode that just dropped, fantastic episode, guys. I'm going to give props to another podcast in our network. That's uh, just a really, really good discussion. Um, they were talking about um, the infamous Boland's Python and how nobody really has figured him out and everything like that. We might be thinking too much. We not be thinking enough, and you know, all that kind of good stuff. But um, you know, food cycling. I think I. I, I, Chad was mentioning the food cycling. I'm going to try food cycling just for fun. I, we at the university we have, I think we have like 15.15 15 corn snakes, and there was a part of me that was like, I'm just going to try to food cycle them in the breeding and just see what happens. Um, but uh, if it, it, there, as long as there's some kind of cycle that's there, I think that's what's important. And I also think there's probably triggers that are telling these animals ancestrally from and they're deep, deep, deep. Evolutionary brain, you know it's winter time. Um, like you mentioned, it could be the the increase of storms that are rolling through, the in- increase of storms that are rolling through, and that barometric pressure staying low for longer. Uh, there's all kinds of things that happen in winter besides it just getting cold. Um, daylight, because because one of the things you said that is that you would put them down. So here's a question: When you would put your animals down, that you weren't necessarily cooling, were they still in darkness? Yeah. Or were they just, yeah, they were
2: they were in the entrance of the crawlspace. It's the only place yeah. that I have to cool anything.
0: Mm-hmm. So so,
2: they're,
0: so they're, they're go ahead. So if the the, the crawlspace doesn't necessarily get cold enough, but they're dark all the time, that could be, you know, when oh, yeah. we talked about that brumation episode, the the presence of a dark environment for an extended period of time was absolutely important for the um destruction of some hormones and the creation of other hormones once they come out of darkness. So who knows? Maybe that's all we need to do.
1: Uh, but no, this is this is all good stuff. Matt, what do you what do you do? Oh, man. Every year I change my cycle and that just screws things just, up. Just me <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so today I actually and, and maybe this might be something of interest in terms of conversation within the general community. But um, obviously within the Midwest, we went from 90 degrees on Wednesday to today, I think it was a high of 72, 73. So I ended up actually, I turned off all of my thermostats on animals, um, respectively. Uh, <laughs> 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 so even though they don't turn on, um, you know, obviously in terms of the temperature regulation, you know, I, I turned them off um, and I actually put together my rubidus and Some of the um, Mexican rubidus, those were just going crazy today, Um, (laughs) just going after each other. So it was kind of interesting to see because, you know, it's only been, what, three, four days since that temperature went. And I mean, naturally, those animals triggered. Right. But it makes you really start to think. I mean, and this has been one of my biggest plays with keeping animals is you have to adjust to what's going on in your natural environment is everywhere around the world, temperature changes. You can't follow a structure of I'm turning off everything on November 1st, right? It's just what's going on outside. If it's snowing outside today, I really needed to have turned off my thermostats, (laughs) right? Because those animals are going to pull that barometric pressure and they're going to be like, wait, I'm going to stop feeding. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to, you know, because there's so many different natural cues that we don't even know. I mean, you know, in terms of um, this time of year, a lot of people get sinus infections, right? And a lot of that has to do with barometric pressure changes. These animals are not very different off of that. I mean, they're still going to feel those climactic changes. They're going to feel it within their body. And, you know, depending on how we're keeping these animals, if they're in a basement, I mean, yeah, you have concrete around them, but they're still going to pull some of that. And that room's temperature might be, depending how the insulation is, depending on what's actually going on, it might slowly cool. But if you had it in terms of, like, your bedroom or you had it in a hallway or you had it upstairs, those changes are going to be rapid, right? I mean, because, like, those animals are going to pick up on that. I mean – one thing we've never even talked about was like the reptilian third eye. Right. I mean, and yeah. we, we've never even brought that up because we've never really had enough time to really talk about chemical cues and animals of that nature. Um, but you know, I mean, natural light cycle plays a huge role in that. I mean, it's just those natural cues really start to trigger animals, whether or not how they're breeding, how they're feeding, um, because it doesn't matter how many generations you have bred in captivity. Those are natural ingrained aspects of survival. Um, you know, one thing I've, I really never talked about this, but maybe I, I might bring this up just because of the way that we're talking about it now is, you know, Sarphometra. The reason why it's called Sarphometra is because, when I was in grad school, um, one of my friends, Parag, came over to my house and we were having some wine, eating, whatever. And he goes, man, you're like a Sarpa And I, I didn't even know what the terminology was. Um, and he started talking about like in India, like how they would have Sarpa walk around villages, ward off snakes. And, you know, one of the things that he kind of really started to like implement in a lot of that conversation was just. You know, how some of those different um, cues or behavioral cues even kind of come into play off of that. Um, And, you know, I think there is a lot of natural biology that we really just don't understand, respective of that.
0: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. One of the things I'm doing right now is, um, according to herpetocultural dogma, I am a bastard because I am cohabbing the crap out of the animals in my house. And the reason why I'm doing that is there's some really cool papers that have been published recently that show that not all snakes, but some snakes may be far more communal and uh, receptive to to groups than we ever wanted to let on. Um, Garter snakes in particular, there was a paper that just got published this week. I haven't read it yet uh, because it was published this week, but they were talking about how basically there's this whole thing. It's where the snakes have friends. Um, I don't know if they have friends, but they definitely have associates where they, they, they form like bonds. And it, it seems to kind of be, yeah, you know, I know where the food is. So you follow me and you can get food, but then I'm going to follow you cause you know where food is. So we kind of both benefit from this relationship. And it's been really weird cause I've been cohabiting some big old falsies in the garage They're in these massive enclosures and they, they all have like three hides, right? They are always in the same hide together. And at first I thought, okay, they're hanging out in the hides because that's where the temperature is perfect. And so that's why they're going to the hide. So at the end where they really tend to be, I stacked hides on top of hides, I put big cork bark tubes in there. Um, no, they're just always together. And it kind of gets into like, why are they doing that? Is that going to lead to better? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a reduction of stress? Is this some dominance thing? And they're hanging out together because the dominant male's like, "Screw you! I've got to always let you know I'm dominant over you," and it's actually making stress go through the roof. Um, but I find it really kind of interesting that uh, you know th- this is something that the scientific community is now starting to allude to, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna play with it. I'm gonna experiment with it. I'm gonna just see what the hell happens. And it's been what i thought was going to happen is not happening i thought that they were going to be always away from each other they were they were going to you know come together do that jerky jerky thing snakes do when they bump into each other and then kind of saying with their body language f off for, for a better better word um uh, but uh no they're they're chilling i mean it's it's crazy uh but that's something else uh, along the same kind of line of thought with your surfing meets you're like thinking outside the box here's it's it's kind of important i think that every time we have a this is the way we've always done it statement we should really start questioning why are we doing it that way it doesn't mean you have to like redo everything but that's just what makes this stuff fun like why would you just always do it the same way that's gonna keep it boring i think
1: no i agree i mean because like kevin you keeping stuff at room town for texas rats (laughs) most people be like what the heck is wrong with this guy?
2: <laughs> no, there's, there's a lot wrong, but
1: <laughs> well, we don't have your dad on this episode. Yeah. So we've <laughs> uh, been, been here for days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I mean, that that's one of the cool parts of this hobby. I mean, that's really why we've all gotten into it. You know, you, you learn about the natural history of the animals. You really start to think about their keeping structure. And I mean, Kevin, I mean, kudos to you. I mean, you're a younger keeper that obviously is producing these animals repeatedly year after year. Um, And to be frank, there aren't many people your age that really focus on one species and really try to dive into that, really try to enhance the morphs, enhance the selective breeding of the coloration of just natural animals. I mean, you, you don't see that very frequent, so...
2: Well, it's, you and I have gone back and forth, and I messaged you, hey, man, that's real cool what you posted. And you're like, ah, oh, just relax, Kevin. You don't need any anymore. <laughs> and then uh, right right before we started, Zach was asking me what what we have. You know, I go to NARBC. It's 30 minutes from my house. So I'm always vending there. You know, I look at stuff, and it's like, man, I really need that. And then I go back to the booth, and it's like, hmm, I really don't need it. I mean, it would be cool to have, but I'm happy with the projects I have right now, and that's the passion that I have you know once once you lose that passion there's what you're going to start not taking care of them as well misfeedings, miswaterings, miss waterings you know lose animals it's just you're you're not going to take the best care of them once you lose that passion
1: Yeah. no i i agree um you know robin marklin once said in an interview he said you know people that are the most successful in this hobby are those that actually focus on certain species Um, And obviously now Robin has started Redline Science, has really started working with kind of growing that community, um, trying to create different tools, all different aspects of it. But I think one of the aspects that he really kind of brought in that conversation was, you know, the person that wants to breed emerald tree boas, they want to breed Amazon boas, they want to breed doom rolls, they want to breed olive pythons, they want to do... Uh, Womas, Texas rats, corn snakes, uh, bamboo rats, and they want to do it all in the same room, they're never going to be successful. No. You know?
0: Yeah, no, you got to dial that in.
1: Yeah. And I think that's like a cool part of just diving in on one species and really just enhancing it.
0: So let's, let's kind of dig in on that a little bit because I, I want to know all the snakes on planet Earth. What happened in Kevin's brain when you saw a Texas rat that made you think that's my snake? I love this question. Um, I I can't tell you why false water cobras are my snake, but I'd like to know why Texas rats. Like, what about that animal at whatever point in time made you go, "Oh yeah, I I, I like these and these are these are it for me."
2: So it was uh, it was at Narbc when uh, my dad set up the deal to buy these. Uh, it was a pair of scaleless Texas rat snakes, and I saw them, and I was like, "Man, these things are awesome!" And I know scaleless isn't for everyone and all that, and that's a whole other topic we're not even going to get on get into today. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I grabbed those, and the um, man's like, "You know what? What are you going to do with those?" And I just i looked at them all weekend because I didn't bring them home from the show. I had them on display there. And Sunday we were packing up. He's like, all right, so what are you going to do with them? I was like, I'm going to breed them. He's like, and he just started laughing. He didn't, 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 say anything. Just started laughing and walked away. And we, we finished loading everything up. Two years go by they were babies when I got them. Two years go by, cool them down. Spring comes around, pair them together, eggs. So for some reason I can, I can time it five weeks from any lock I get, <laughs> I, I have eggs Out to the day. It's five weeks. So five weeks after they locked that first time, I had eggs. So those eggs hatched. Coming to find out, the first one that hatches out is a scaleless leucistic. I sent it to Matt. Never <laughs> even really talked to Matt before, but I knew him because of the Chicago Reptile House and everything. And I asked him, I said, dude, what is this? I said, I know you've got rats Texas rat snakes and everything. And I said, this, this just hatched out of two normals that I bought. And he's like, oh, that's a leucistic. He's like, uh, did you know that they were het- leucistic or anything? It was a leucistic scalus. I was like, no. So then I I go to work for the desk. I work second shift at the time. That one hatched first thing in the morning. Come back at night, and there's a blue and black one. I was like, okay, what's going on here? So I (laughs) send that to Matt. Matt's like, dude, where did you get those? It's like somebody had them on on one of the Facebook Tinley groups, and I bought them. It was a scaleless anery that hatched out. So every every baby that I, I produced that year, I think I've only sold one male, and then... One female, I think, from that from that clutch, and the rest I've held back. And last year I, I hatched a couple. Of, I uh, proved out a couple of posset females and a couple of posset males. So I'm, I'm debating on bringing those to Tinley to 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 get rid of those, since I, I produce either 100 percent hats or visuals now. That'll be up to size. So it's we'll we'll see what goes on from there. But uh, and just the variety in you know? them. I mean, you can have two snakes that look hundred percent different and it's the same genetic and everything, or you can have two different genetics and they look exactly the same. So there's mm-hmm. there's some hundred percent head anaries that I have that look anary when they when they get up to size. And how do I how do I tell people, yeah, it's a hundred percent hat, but it looks like it visually. So I mean yeah. just the variation in them kind of brought me in and then proving my dad wrong was another thing that, that <laughs> That, that really gave me that drive. And then Matt Matt kind of steered me in the right direction. You know, he took me under his wings and he was like, you know, dude, focus on something that you enjoy and, and you'll be happy with it. And that's that's the way it's been for the past five or six years that I've been doing it. Every, every year I end up with 60 or 70 babies and I go home every day after work and I interact with every single baby, whether it be water, food, just handling it, just interacting with it. Trying to get rid of that that Texas rat snake uh, name for them.
0: Mm -hmm. There you go. No, that's perfect. Perfect, perfect.
1: Yeah, no, I, you know, it it really is something, though. I mean, because when you interact with the animals, you really start to learn about them. And I agree. I mean, it really is a lot about selective breeding. I mean, some of the Texas rats that I have, I mean, some of the head animals, I mean, they're like quad heads. Some of those are my favorite animals. I mean, the orange, purple colorations on the animals. I mean, you you really can't compare that to anything else. Um, you know, because everyone just thinks of a Texas rat as like a drub, like brown animal. But there's so much more in terms of coloration. And I mean, you've seen people post now some of the I don't know, Kevin, yeah, ketamine, um, but I mean, they're, they're so like fascinating. I mean, there's so much coloration across them um, and there's such a large, impressive animal. I mean, some of the Texas rats I have here will take medium to large rats, Oh yeah, yep. which is like insane when you start to think about it as like a large colubrid, but when you have a colubrid that's like six, seven feet long, you know, that's an impressive colubrid too as well.
2: Oh, yeah. And go, going on, like, the colors and everything is... I haven't I haven't even let you know this, Matt, but uh, still still an old time... I like, going going king snake, believe it or not. And I was scrolling one day at work and, you know, Texas rat snake popped up, wild caught. It had, like, this weird olively, olive green color to it. And I was like, man, that'd be pretty cool to breed into some scaleless. That's mostly what I work with, but I do work with, with Hetz with Matt and everything. It's like... I, don't, I want to try refining this green olive color and, and stuff and and see what can happen from there so i looked looked up the locality of it and just like the topography of the where it came from and everything and it's nothing but pine trees and ferns and moss and i was like i wouldn't expect the texas rat snake to be in there you know you just expect them to, to be somewhere else not not in in pine trees and all that and it makes sense why it's got that green olive color That's that's something that's that's in the works eventually.
1: Well, Kevin, you just hit it right on the head right there of why you're interested in these animals, which means you're not only interested in the animals, but you're also interested in where they're found. Because for you to take the time to actually look up where the animal is found and actually look and think about why they're actually that natural coloration brings this whole hobby into a whole different direction. Right. because but that's to have that
2: drive for for it to be successful and for and not even money wise successful because i mean what what's money at the end of the day you can go go to go to a j job and make more money right so if if you don't have that drive and that passion to, to go and take the time to look at it there's no no point in to, for me honestly that there'd be no no point for me to to do it you know i, I want to learn more about it see what i can do to better these things and refine them yeah, that, that's
0: my favorite part, without question. Um, I like bringing the animals... Well, I usually read or nerding out on social media or I see a picture of something and then that like just kind of sets this domino cascade in place. And sometimes the cascade leads to another snake in the damn house. And then another time, it's just, all right, I learned about those. I'm going to put a pin in that and we may come back to it. Yeah, at another point in time. I was just down in my, kind of getting to the, like, why we do this and all that. I was in the garage where I have most of the big big animals here at the house. And I realized that all my really big PVC enclosures, I've got a stack of three eight-footers. They're eight-foot long, three feet deep, two feet tall. Um, and then I got some six-footers on the end of that. Uh, and I was looking at it, and I was like, it's like all South America. I never realized that it was all South America. Um my anacondas are there, yellows, not greens. That's I'm not doing that. <laughs> A couple boas uh and then the falsies, they're all there and uh you know I've I've in in writing the book. I've done the same thing you did deep 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 dirt dive. Like I barely knew Paraguay existed 4 years ago. Now I know every major city in Paraguay, all the rivers that are in Paraguay, the difference between the, the, the different types of Cerrado, like all that stuff. Um, the wetlands, it's just in it, 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 all of it, every time I look at those snakes, especially the yellow anacondas and the false water cobras, because they pretty much live the exact same spot. I am just, I am always thinking about what's happening in Philadelphia, um, not Pennsylvania, Paraguay, what's happening in the capital of Paraguay. What's happening in the Ibera wetlands in Argentina right now. Uh, and it just makes it that much more fun. Like, that's the thing I don't understand. Like, I, I can't... I get having a thermostat, setting it, breeding, blah, blah, blah. But just kind of up-leveling like you, you did when you looked at what was going on with the topography and why is this thing green. That just kind of takes to a different level and makes it way more interesting to me. Like, that... that, that that's what. what's the driver, is, is learning those kind of little nuggets. Um, and then you put all those nuggets together with an animal you raised that was in a deli cup, and
1: then you get more of them?
0: Like, you can't ask for anything better than that.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so. You kidding me? That was, like, the best thing that happened when we all got Apple phones or whatever, or weather.com <laughs> app. It's like, uh-huh. oh, what's going on here? Oh, holy yeah. cow, <laughs> what? What's the temperature there? Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. So, Kevin, you know, off of that, I mean, all right, you've got all these morphs, right, of Texas rats. What's the long-term goal here? What do you want to do with all this stuff? Oh, you know, it
2: changes every day. You know, that's it gives, <laughs> gives me that drive. It's like one day I want to make snow scaleless. Then another day it's like, oh, I want to do this. I really love the the anery scaleless just because they got that bluish-purple tinge. But then it's like, okay, maybe I don't like the scalus on them, because then it's the black and white Texas rat snake, you know? It it changes every day. It changes every day. It, it, it's enjoyable. There's no no really and I wouldn't say there is an end goal, but there isn't at the same time, mm-hmm. if that
1: makes any sense. Alright. Makes total sense. So my goal with the Texas rats is to some way form – If anyone listening to this episode knows where I can find any of these, Mark and Kim Bell at one time had some lavender albino Texas rats, and they've disappeared from the hobby. (laughs) If anyone has any of those, I'm sure Kevin would be interested and I would be interested. Um, So obviously let us know because that would be very cool to actually rekindle those types of morphs in the hobby.
2: Well, Matt, uh, may actually have some. Uh, I just got those. They were <laughs> sold to me as lavender albinos, but I like I I sent you those some I'm going to send you some pictures here tonight and you tell me what you think about them, but they were sold to me as lavender albinos. I've got one female that's up to size, she'll go next year. And then uh I picked up a trio a month ago. And uh someone out of Pennsylvania had them and so hopefully in the next couple of years, I'll be, I'll be able to get you taken care of, my friend.
1: <laughs> this is like uh, the keeper and the kept, right? Exactly. <laughs> I actually have a question for Matt
0: because I just had like – I just put some stuff together here. Our, our second episode with Clint was about black rat snakes. And here you had these projects with Clint with black rat snakes. Now we're talking with Kevin about Texas rat snakes and you got projects with Kevin with Texas rat snakes, and you're kind of known as the Asian rat snake guy. But it seems like American rat snakes kind of do it, do it for you a little bit here, because uh, you know I, you don't. What other rat snakes are you working with that are from from the states?
1: Oh man, I mean they should probably just call me the Godfather of rat snakes now at this point, right? Yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> I, I, I think that we need yeah, to like I change like the classification.
1: You- <laughs> Every day, there's something new on his page. Oh man, um. Well, obviously, I work with corns, right? Which mm-hmm. is still one of those aspects, but... Um, That's a rat snake. Yep. Um, red rats, which is still kind of a controversial subject with people that keep corns and mm-hmm. traditional. Um, Everglades, I still keep. Um, yellow rats, I still keep. Um, beards. I still keep. Um <laughs> I'm like scrolling down because some of these I just keep like a pair at this point point. and it's just mm-hmm. in you know one of my long term goals and, and some people know this some people don't know this but before I die I would actually like to produce in captivity every rat snake that's available in captivity that's actually cool. my long term goal so hopefully I don't die tomorrow so I can actually accomplish. Uh, But, you know, that's something I've, I've found a real strong passion with rat snakes and it's something that I've continued to drive and really kind of move forward. But one of the things that, you know, off of that is Texas rat snakes were nothing in the years past. And
0: I was literally given one
1: yeah, (laughs) at a show. Yeah. And there you go. You know, Kevin, I met, man, it's gotta be what, like, 10 years ago now, Kevin, probably even longer at this yeah. point. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you probably met me when I was in a stroller at one of the shows or something. Like
2: <laughs> or at the Chicago reptile house, something, yeah.
1: something like that. But, you know, it, it's cool. It, this is something I find really enjoyable. And, and Zach, you yourself as, you know, an educator and, and mentor too, as well as it's, there's different people you're going to meet along the way in this community. And some people are going to be able to help to foster the growth in that aspect. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kevin, I I really do appreciate, you know, your conversations because they were always very good conversations. They weren't about money. They weren't about, Mm -hmm. you know, X, Y, Z. You were actually interested in the animals and it actually showed your true colors. Um, I never mind talking to people about stuff like that. But when it gets to a certain point of just one aspect of it and you're not trying to refine your breeding goals, you're not trying to find out about the animals. Um, For instance, I got a message today from someone that just wanted to ask, what's the best animal I could add to my collection that would add the most monetary value years coming forward? I'm not going to respond to that message. Um, So I, I thought that was very cool. Um, and that's why I wanted to make sure, and we've become very good friends over the years too. Um, you know, Stan Grumbach was, is a mentor of mine and, you know, I've worked with him on a number of projects, but I think that's a cool part of this hobby is like working on projects, growing the community, strengthening your breeder lines. I mean, Justin, when Justin came on, I mean, he talked about it. I mean, that's the cool part about this hobby that's what this hobby should really be about. Um, yeah. You know, when you really get into it, because like regulations are going to get harder. Fish and wildlife is going to get more stringent. So you have to come together as a community. And without that community or level of that community, you know, it becomes very um, self-centered, I would say might be the best word. And and Kevin, you thinking about this like broader and especially at your age to be frank I think that's an awesome attribute. I think that's something, you know, yeah. everyone listening to this episode right now that might be in their teens, early 20s, shit. And excuse my language, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s come back to the passion of why you actually did this. Because without yes. that, you know, this community, this this um this aspect of what we're going through right now you know we're never going to overcome it and that well was deep said. and I <laughs> so <laughs>
0: yeah I mean you're talking to the guy that has neurodia you want to talk about animals that have next to no value <laughs> and I I will yeah. always have neurodia so I, I'm preach on brother Matt man <laughs> that's all I have to say yeah. on that one
2: Oh, uh, well, it's very, just very, like, I've, I've boring. got a couple of snakes that, that somebody, somebody's been messing me about and everything. And, and he's got a couple scaleless and, and whatnot. And, uh, he's about my age and, and he wants, wants one of the scaleless anerys. It's a pretty expensive snake. And I told him, I was like, you know, if they don't sell it at any RBC, I said, let's, let's work on a breeding loan. I said, well, you take half of the clutch, I'll take the other half. And I said, I'll just send you the mail. He said, I've got plenty of them. You know, it's to me, it's all fun. I, I want to, want to have pass it on like Matt Matt has I have some some Matt snakes at my house you know he's like breed whatever to it just like what I'm doing with with this snake if you want to breed it this year breed it if you don't then don't you know and if something something were to happen to that snake it happens man don't don't feel feel obligated to to pay me as as long as you're taking taking good care of it and and you can prove it then so be it something happened you know It's, it's part of the hobby but if 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 you're not willing to help somebody and and pass that on, then I mean that's that's what's going to kill the hobby, you know.
0: Yeah, hundred percent.
1: All right, so Kevin, I got a question for you. If you had your own house, you didn't just have a bedroom. Your girlfriend didn't have animals of yours at her house. What <laughs> other animals would you want to have in your collection? I, I really don't know, Matt. You know, I'm
2: kind of happy with what I got right now. I just like to get more of them. You know, I got the Texas rat snakes, gargoyle geckos, blue tongue skinks, retics, um, blood pythons. I'd I'd love to get a good clutch of those. I I put in years of work with those. I just gotta gotta figure out what what's what's the issue and why I keep getting slugs and infertiles. You know, so to say that I get another species, I I don't, don't see a reason to you know I'm, I'm happy with what I have and I just love to expand and, and be able to, to wake up in the morning and, and not have other snakes looking at me
0: <laughs>
2: but it's I I love it the way it is right now so who knows maybe I'll have a bunch of snakes in my in my room when I get my own house
0: <laughs> yeah on, on that note there's a moose arana that lives in the closet in my wife and I's bedroom so, there you go <laughs> The,
2: the girlfriend's actually half asleep right now Looking at me and shaking her head uh-huh.
0: That's the only place that damn thing does well uh, I have a wonderful wife That's
1: And, and Zach's wife is going like this
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> She can't hear There's a wall uh, She would definitely it, yeah, It'll
2: be moved we'll out of the bed. closet tomorrow
0: <laughs> Yeah Anyway Cool 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 um, So, where here's a question for you. We we ask everybody this question, and we can kind of we can add a little bit of meat to the bone with this this go around, since the the, the theme of the second half of the pod this go around's kind of been this whole passion driven um at, aspect to herpeticulture and young guys getting in and all that kind of good stuff. So, what do you think the future is for herpeticulture? Do you think it's it's positive, negative, um? full of hope, full of dread. Where, where do you neutral? Um, any idea on that? Be interesting to hear your perspective.
2: Uh, it's actually funny, funny that you bring that up. Cause Matt and I were talking about that. Well, while you were getting logged on, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's people, my age, and I, I hate to say it as like category and everything. but All they think about is money, 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 money. But like without that passion, I mean, that, you're just—it's—it's it's not about the money, you know. There's—you can make cages, you know, like we were talking mm-hmm. about the uh, the conversion kits. I don't have a CNC machine; I do that all by hand with a hand router and and wood wooden jigs, and I mean it comes out ninety nine percent the same same every time and straight cuts and everything. There's other ways to make money in this hobby than than selling animals. So mm-hmm. cages you, you can buy tubs wholesale and, and sell them that way and just to be involved in the community you know so i think if if we think of it more of a hobby and less of a business it's going to go in the right direction but there's there's definitely ways to make it a business without say the lack of care or or the moving a million million animals a year or you know, it's there's there's just different ways to to get that Money back out of your initial investment in in this hobby, if if you know what I mean. So I yeah. I I think with with the right intentions, it'll head in the right direction, and I hope it does because I've got a lot of time invested in it. <laughs> not not saying that if yeah. if the hobby goes away, that I'm gonna stop doing what I'm doing because I love it. You know, it's it's something relaxing. You know, all my all my friends are like, how how do you find cleaning a hundred snakes a week relaxing? You no know, it's because I interact with them and they're they're all different even though they're the same species so as long as as long as we have that passion that drive and yeah money's money's there and and you can you can make it in the hobby don't have that as your initial drive have that passion and and why you're doing it as that initial drive to to stay in this hobby and I, I think it'll 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 do great you know
1: cool. So, Kevin, just real quick, um, I don't know if your dad even remembers this, but, you know, talking about Lee Watson swap, Ty Park used to actually bend at that, too. I don't even know if you know that. I did not. I did not. There's a lot of history at that swap, man. Yes. Yes, there is. Besides for the chickens, rabbits, pigs, and everything else being sold outside of that place. So...
2: What about the uh, the guy who had all the the, <laughs> skull, the skulls and everything on the wall that he used to sell there? Oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. but we <laughs> that, that's like a whole other story on the outside yeah, of it. Yeah. But but no, I like I said, I I think this was a cool episode to just kind of talk about the history, um, but also get someone you know kind of up and coming in this hobby. I I, I think it really kind of brings value to it.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Thank you. It's it's fun. I've I've heard a lot of people say that one of the things that they like about our podcast is the breadth of our guests. In that we haven't really honed in on one generation. Like we have people that have been around forever, and we have people that are, are young and you know in, in entering and in, and not that you are entering, Kevin, but you. you know,
2: oh, I still am. I mean, I got I get a million on, things but, to learn about the Texas wrestling. So I'm I'm not yeah. a pro. I'll admit that.
0: Oh, but see, that's the. That's awesome that you said that because there's people that like three months in, they got six eggs. And they're like, oh, no, this is the way you do it all the time. And I'll flat out tell you, I'm I'm learning the king snakes kicked my ass this year when I really started. I, 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 I was like, yeah, we got a lot of kings. And then we were like, oh, I got four clutches. So like, you know, uh, and that's an easy snake. That's a so-called beginner snake. Um, and I think where be, I am be careful Virginia, with that it may term not be that.
2: There's, yeah, I, I wouldn't I don't say think that it's, there's there's a initial beginner snake. It depends how much research you do on something and and all that. You you could have one of Matt's. What are they? The red and black striped snakes. If not saying that there's a lot of research done, but if if you spend as much time on it and and all that, could that not be a beginner snake for you? If you if you do uh, everything I, right, and, you I know? agree
0: with you 100. percent. That's what I was getting at. If the, what, what is easy for one person may be difficult for another. Um, and I can flat out tell you that whole passion thing you're talking about. My uh, my whole goal next year is to really kind of nail down this getula King breeding thing. I've got some ideas why it didn't work. That's for another discussion, another day. <laughs> but uh, if I didn't care and I was just in this to you know make snakes, I'd be like, all right, on to the next thing. Um, but no, I'm I'm giving it a go and we'll see how this ultimately works out but yeah no you definitely have the right attitude man i wish there's lots of people that have your attitude i i think i don't think that the kevins of the world have a have a loud enough voice um and i i think that we need more kevins to kind of let everybody know that they're out there that we're that they're doing things and and you know you're what makes this community better is what i would have to say <laughs>
2: would you and the whole that, thing is too is you know Everyone's you have to have a million of this and a million of that and and that goes back to Matt asking me that question if when when I get a house and and what I'm gonna have and everything and you know i've been been thinking about it the longer we've been doing this it's like I want to expand but theres there comes a point where it just becomes too much work and and you know not I wouldn't say work but it's just too much for for one person and and you know to me it's a hobby i don't the girlfriend helps me with stuff and everything and and she loves to learn about it. You know, I like doing it myself, and and that way I can focus on the things myself and and whatnot. So to say that you need like even right now, last year I had thirty five females that could have gone. I only had ten females that I paired, and I didn't need all those babies. You know, you 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 don't need a million million babies to be happy or a million adults or or whatever. You just you have to find find what you like and and just stick with that and find a comfortable number. I I can't be like Matt and and have. 1,000 females with this and a 1,000 females with <laughs> that and 10,000 yeah. babies this year and 20
1: the next, you know. Some years it works, yeah. some years it doesn't. So, Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so even, all
2: right. even to this day, I'll, I'll ask Matt questions that if I look back in my in my messages, I answer myself and Matt's probably like, what's he talking about? He already knows the answer to this or something on the Texas So, I'll be like, I'll like look back in the messages. I'm like, what do you mean? I'll scroll back and he's like, I already answered it myself. You know, it's it's always a learning game and just got to keep on learning and driving. Yeah.
0: There you go. Well. All right. Cool. I think that's a perfect place to end. So thank you for coming on, Kevin. Thanks. We will definitely have you thank on. Thank you guys the for having maybe, me. Yeah. Maybe we'll see what happens this year with all those morphs that you're trying to to produce. Zach, um, are you coming to NARBC, Tinley? I am actually coming to my very first one. Um, the It's it's funny. I'm bringing... Uh, how many students am I bringing? I don't know. It's like five or six students. I can't think off the top of my head. And then the other person that's at the university that um helps me with all the animals. Uh, Kinsey Guthrie, Miss Guthrie to all the students. She's coming. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm looking forward to coming to a big show. Um, not I haven't been to one since. Jesus. I went to Daytona in 2003. And that was the last really big show I've been to. So we shall see uh, what this is like. But, yeah, no, I will be there. And I'm definitely going to stop by. Your, so you're going to have a table, Kevin? Is yes. This we'll is correct?
2: Have two, two booths, and I'll have some gifts for you guys. Oh, okay, well. I'll Matt, definitely stop by, not
0: because of the gift, but it'd be nice to meet you. That's Matt, just a bonus. <laughs> Matt's,
2: Matt's too cool. He's got a, a wedding or something to go to, so yeah. I guess, guess I'll miss out. Mm-hmm. So,
0: anywho. No, I'll be there. Definitely that stop Celebrity by. shirt, sweatshirt. Definitely stop okay. by. Cool, cool. Will do. Alrighty, sir. If people want to get a hold of you, how do you recommend they do that?
2: Uh, you can either visit our Facebook page, uh, Instagram page, either Offspring Reptiles on both platforms, or you can get at me directly. It's Kevin Sheehan, and I'll either have a picture of me and my girlfriend as a Facebook picture, or it'll be race cars, it'll be drag race. So, so there you go. <laughs> you see the cars on there, or you can get at me on Instagram. It's, it's an old username, but it's Gecko Poppy for Life. Nice. You can me on there. So those are, All right, those cool. are the ways to, to get a hold of me.
0: Okay. So, uh, and then obviously drop by his table if you go to Tinley. Absolutely. Uh, so there's that as well. Um, will you have Texas Rats there? Or, uh, or are all those your holdbacks?
2: Close to 75, I want to say.
0: Oh, there you go. So if, if yeah. you listen to this and you're going to Tinley and you want Texas Rats, definitely hit up Kevin. <laughs> we'll
2: have, uh, Scalus, Scalus cystic, Scalus annery, um, Scaleless double heads, scaleless double pos hats, normals, normal leucist, they're scaled leucistics. Uh, it's kind of actually something that's in the corn snakes in the UK, is the micro scale corn snakes. I don't know if you've seen those, Zach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, those so are I sent crazy. these to, to Matt, actually. I produced some, uh, some weird scaleless Texas rat snakes last year that actually look like micro scales. So that's actually something that may be in the works. We'll see if we can pass that on to the future generations, and I'll have some of those there. I'll have some adults. I mean, I'll I'll have a bunch. There you go. Cool. I'm looking forward to meeting you. We'll be right next to the Chicago Reptile House booth. Oh, perfect.
0: Perfect. Okay. Well, I will see you there. And people that want to get a hold of me, um, Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, uh, Zach Loafman on Facebook. Like I said, I'm down to half a dozen false water cobras. Um, so if you're interested in one of those, hit me up. Uh, other than that, uh, Matt, where can people find
1: you on the road? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, all, all joking aside, uh, no, uh, Sarpamitra on Instagram or Facebook. All right, cool.
0: So this has been another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. As always, we want to thank the NPR Network for hosting our show. Uh, We love being a part of the network. We're proud to be part of the network, and we love the output uh, that the network's, you know, contributing to the hobby. So, um, yeah, give some of the other podcasts a listen. I've been listening to Boas, Boas, Boas because I'm a boa guy, too. uh, And I just, oh, man, I love those. there's only three episodes out and I've listened to each one twice. So uh, there you go. So with that, thank you for listening to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid radio. And yeah, we'll catch you again some other time. Uh, Have a good one.